people think that in this day and age of, of media scrutiny and government oversight that things like this won't happen. And I think people need to understand that that's, those aren't protections against another Jonestown. On November 17, 1978, Congressman Leo Ryan landed at Port Kaituma Airstrip in Guyana. Ryan, the picture-perfect, idealistic American politician, began the hour-long trek to a jungle compound that housed nearly 1,000 American citizens. The compound's members moved thousands of miles away from home in the hopes of finding salvation and freedom in Jonestown, the new headquarters of the People's Temple. Ryan arrived at the jungle commune to overwhelming cheers and applause. There, he finally came face to face with the People's Temple's leader, Jim Jones, a drug-addled Midwestern preacher well beyond his prime. At the end of that meeting, neither of them would leave the compound alive. One death can change the world. At least that's what assassins believe. Welcome to Assassinations on the ParCast Network. Every Monday, we examine the famous assassins of history and the men and women who were assassinated. I'm your host, Bill Thomas. And I'm your host, Kate Leonard. This is our first episode on Congressman Leo Ryan, who was killed by members of the People's Temple on November 18, 1978. To help us understand the motives of Ryan's assassins, we've asked our friends from ParCast's podcast, Cults, to join us. Hi, I'm Greg. And I'm Vanessa. Every Tuesday on Cults, we take a deep dive into the psychology of cult leaders and the people who follow them. Today, we're here to offer some deeper insight into what happened behind the scenes at Jonestown leading up to the massacre. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoy today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. We also now have merchandise. Head to ParCast.com merch for more information. No arrests were ever made for the murder of Congressman Leo Ryan. However, the unknown gunmen who pulled the trigger weren't the real masterminds of the assassination. They were brainwashed by a man who was responsible for nearly a thousand deaths in his quest to build a paradise. Congressman Leo Ryan and People's Temple leader Jim Jones were closer ideologically than one might assume. They both believed the American way of life was unfair to the working classes and that the country's most vulnerable were being taken advantage of. They both viewed themselves as the voice of the underprivileged, Although they couldn't have taken more different paths in pursuits of a shared goal, their journeys both ended at the same isolated compound in the Guyanese jungle. To understand what the People's Temple became, we need to start at the beginning. In 1951, at the age of 20, Jim Jones and his new bride, Marceline Baldwin, bought their first house together in Indianapolis, Indiana. As soon as they settled in, Jones began preaching at a local Methodist church. Plucking ideas from Marxism, Jones urged the churchgoers to come together for a higher purpose, 
something greater than the money they were killing themselves to earn. In one sermon, he criticized American capitalism by saying, it seems gross to me that one human being would have so much more than another. Most scholars argue that Jones didn't fully comprehend the communist philosophy he was preaching, beyond the basic idea that capitalism is bad. Historian Mark Lane once met with Jones and concluded his scholarship in Marxist ideology was so deficient that he might have experienced difficulty in distinguishing between the words of Karl Marx and Groucho Marx. Even as communism became a hot-button issue throughout the 50s, it wasn't the political ideology echoing through Jones's pews that got him in trouble. It was the radical racial equality that Jones preached. Jones and his wife, Marceline, adopted children from many different ethnic backgrounds. They were the first white couple in the state of Indiana to adopt a black child. The couple charmingly referred to their household as a rainbow family. Jones wanted to integrate more people of color into his congregation, but the Methodist church he preached at wasn't as keen on desegregation. So in 1956, Jones left and opened his own church in Indianapolis, the People's Temple Full Gospel Church. The People's Temple didn't follow a specific ideology. Jones borrowed ideas from religions and scholars on every end of the philosophical spectrum. He even borrowed the practice of faith healings he'd witnessed at a Baptist church. During his services, Jones would bring a person with an illness or disability on stage, shout some prayers as loud as he could, and then smack them on the head to knock the demons out, thereby healing them, allegedly. According to sociology professor Gary Maynard from Stony Brook University, Jones's preaching style displayed a grandiose sense of self-importance and an excessive need for admiration. These are often considered characteristics of narcissism. Before we go any further, just a brief disclaimer. Vanessa is not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but she has done a lot of research for this show. Thanks, Greg. Maynard writes that Jones displayed many, if not all, of the symptoms of narcissistic personality disorder over the course of his career. For example, claiming to have magical healing abilities. But because he was so charming and persuasive, most of his congregation didn't challenge his behavior. Whether his faith healings were actually effective or not, Jones's attention-grabbing antics did succeed in bringing in more followers than he ever could have imagined. This meant more money in his pockets. Jones viewed his congregation as a sort of religious commune based on his misinformed understanding of socialist principles. He asked his members to give up all their possessions to the temple, and in turn, they would be taken care of by the church. What this meant in practice was that parishioners would sign over their social security and welfare checks, and Jones would promise to repay them once the church became more sustainable. Not a cent was ever repaid. By 1961, five years after the People's Temple opened, Jones felt the church had reached its full potential in the Midwest. He wanted to move his congregation to a new location to grow their reach, but none of his followers wanted to leave their homes in Indianapolis. Dr. Robert Cialdini, a psychology professor at Arizona State University, suggested another possible motivation for the move, exerting more control over his followers. By taking his followers out of their familiar environment and placing them in unfamiliar surroundings, Jones could foster a sense of uncertainty and disconnection within his congregation. 
Around the same time, Jones told his churchgoers he had a nightmarish premonition that Chicago, of all places, would fall victim to a nuclear attack by 1965, and the fallout would reach Indiana. He claimed the entire Midwest would burn, like Hiroshima and Nagasaki had, less than two decades before. His followers, who trusted his word above all else, agreed it was time to move. And off to California they went. The hippie movement that was taking off in San Francisco aligned closely with Jones's own values, but San Francisco was a bit pricey. So by 1965, Jones and his followers set up shop in nearby Redwood Valley. Jones spent the next decade in California, opening temples all across the state, from Sacramento to Los Angeles. As the hippie movement's doctrine of freedom and equality gained popularity, so did the People's Temple. And Jones, with his rock star black sunglasses, became a full-fledged celebrity. By the late 60s, Jones's weekly sermons in San Francisco drew upwards of 3,000 listeners. He found supporters in prominent figures, including Jane Fonda, First Lady Rosalind Carter, Vice President Walter Mondale, and California Governor Jerry Brown. But behind the scenes, the People's Temple wasn't as peaceful as it seemed. By the late 60s, Jones had picked up a serious addiction to both heroin and cocaine, and it only exacerbated his naturally bad temper. He would often physically and sexually assault the male temple members. The abuse was treated like an open secret within the People's Temple. Everyone knew about it, but no one spoke of it. Jones also began to use temple funds for a private army, which would come to be known as the Red Brigade. The army served as Jones's personal security detail and was also used to intimidate and harass anyone who spoke poorly about the temple. Perhaps the most shocking abuse of power came in 1972, when Jones coerced temple members Timothy and Grace Stone to sign away the parental rights of their newborn son, John. Timothy resisted, But after two weeks of intense pressure, he agreed to sign an affidavit stating that Jim Jones was the legal father of baby John and that the child would be bound to Jones and the church for life. These abuses would not stay secret for long. Later in 1972, journalist Lester Kinsolving released a series of exposés detailing the physical abuse at the People's Temple, as well as Jones's drug use and allegations of money laundering. Jones immediately tried to hush up the reports by claiming that the allegations were totally fabricated. Some of Jones's high-profile supporters stood by him, but to much of the public, he'd been revealed as the same sort of exploitative false prophet he'd always condemned in his sermons. The following year, in 1973, eight People's Temple members defected from the church. They feared Jones wouldn't allow them to leave the temple's headquarters if they asked, so they escaped in secret and fled to Montana. Once they reached safety, they sent Jones a letter detailing the reasons why they left. The letter made it explicitly clear that it wasn't Jones the defectors were upset with. They'd had issues with his staff. But in Jones's mind, an attack on his staff was an attack on himself. He sent his security force, the Red Brigade, to hunt down the defectors and seek retribution. Fortunately, they were able to elude the brigade for long enough that Jones eventually called off the hit. 
And by the beginning of the next year, Jones had much bigger problems to worry about. In early 1973, Jones visited an infamous gay hookup spot in Los Angeles that was under surveillance by the LAPD. Jones propositioned a sex worker who turned out to be an undercover police officer and was arrested immediately for soliciting sex. His legal team fought hard and was able to have the case sealed and removed from the public record, but word had already spread to the media. With members fleeing and bad press mounting, Jones realized he needed to leave California and find a place where he'd have total control over his church. This was an escalation of the same strategy he'd employed years earlier when he'd moved the temple headquarters from Indiana to California. Jones looked into multiple locations before landing on a poverty-stricken country in the middle of South America called Guyana. After a brief visit to Georgetown, the country's capital, Jones knew Guyana would make a perfect home. It matched both of his prerequisites. It was quiet, and it was far, far away from the American government and press. Once he returned stateside in the summer of 1974, he sent some of his temple members down to the jungles to begin clearing trees and building cabins. His loyal follower, Timothy Stone, served as the liaison between the capital of Georgetown and the new township, which they christened Jonestown. Timothy's wife, Grace, refused to join him. She was fed up with Jones's manipulation and verbal abuse, and she begged Timothy to leave the church before things got any worse, but he refused. Although Grace and Timothy both joined the People's Temple at around the same time, Timothy seems to have been closer to Jim Jones. While Grace was able to see Jones's abuse as a red flag, Timothy was too blinded by Jones's good side, his charitable works, charisma, and confidence. The Jonestown Building Project became more urgent on August 1st, 1977, when Jones received an unexpected phone call from New West Magazine. The publication was about to release an article exposing the People's Temple's inner workings. Jones still counted a number of very powerful figures among his supporters, including California Governor Jerry Brown. So, as a show of respect, the magazine's editors called Jones and gave him notice that the piece was going to run the next day. Jones sat with his lawyers and closest associates while the article was read to him over the phone. The piece detailed the charitable work Jones had done with the ACLU and NAACP, the temple's social programs for children, soup kitchens, etc. But then the article pivoted towards the darker aspects of the church, the physical and sexual abuse, financial crimes, and misuse of members' government aid checks. While the editors were speaking, Jones scribbled down on a piece of paper, quote, we leave tonight, notify Georgetown. When we come back, we'll explore the next chapter of the People's Temple's history and the legal battle that brought them into conflict with Congressman Leo Ryan. Now back to the story. On August 1st, 1977, Jim Jones was informed that a damaging article about the People's Temple was about to be published. Before it could hit the newsstands the next morning, Jones, his wife and children, and his flock of loyal followers were en route to the newly built Jonestown compound in Guyana. Jones was able to persuade his followers to migrate by playing up the beauty of the jungle. But when they arrived, they found hell, 
not paradise. The Jonestown diet consisted mostly of rice and rotting fruit. The number of inhabitants grew more quickly than cabins could be constructed. So at first, most of the members slept inside the main mess hall. According to psychiatrist Kay Herreri, who worked with Jonestown survivors, sleep deprivation and inadequate nutrition can break down the ability to make rational judgments and weaken psychological resistance. The conditions at the compound only made it more difficult for the temple members to rebel against Jones's abuse. The exception to that rule was Timothy Stone. By the time Jones arrived in Guyana in August 1977, Timothy had already been working there for nearly a year. He was still facing habitual harassment from Jones. And now that the two of them were in the same country again, the abuse became too much to handle. In the fall of 1977, Timothy had finally had enough. He flew back to San Francisco, leaving his five-year-old son, John, behind. As he'd signed over his parental rights to Jim Jones, Timothy had no legal right to take the child out of the country. But Timothy had no intention of leaving his son in Guyana for good. Once he was stateside, Timothy reconnected with his wife, Grace, and began a legal case against Jim Jones that would catch the attention of a certain United States congressman from San Francisco. Leo Joseph Ryan Jr. was, in many ways, the ideal all-American political candidate. He was born on May 5, 1925, in Lincoln, Nebraska. Leo's father died when he was just 11 years old, so his mother shipped him off to boarding school while she traveled for her job at the newly established Social Security Administration. At 18 years old, Ryan graduated from a prestigious Jesuit high school in Wisconsin and immediately entered a U.S. Navy V-12 officer training program in Maine. World War II was in full swing in 1943, and before the end of the year, Ryan had finished the training program and was deployed as a naval submariner. Ryan served in the Navy for three years until 1946. After the war ended, he moved back home to Nebraska and attended Creighton University, where he earned both a bachelor's and a master's degree in education. In 1956, at the age of 31, Ryan moved to San Francisco to teach English at Cappuccino High School. He also had a position on the South San Francisco City Council. In 1961, Ryan chaperoned the school marching band's trip to Washington, D.C. for President John F. Kennedy's inaugural parade. Ryan cited Kennedy's famous call to service address as the main factor that inspired him to turn his career's focus to politics. And so, my fellow Americans, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. In 1962, at age 37, Ryan ran for mayor of South San Francisco and won. Just a year later, he was elected to the California State Assembly. Ryan's top aide, Jackie Speer, called Ryan's approach to lawmaking experimental legislating. He often took the extra step to make sure he understood the problems facing his community. In 1965, tensions between Los Angeles's Black communities and the LAPD were at an all-time high. This served as the catalyst for the week-long Watts riots in mid-August 1965. After the riots ended, Assemblyman Ryan went undercover as a substitute teacher in a Watts public school to investigate the underlying issues that led to the riots. 
Ryan noted that the students were products of their environment. Most were too tired to pay much attention in class due to fights in the streets and police sirens blaring all through the night. Some students brought lunches consisting of just a single piece of bread. He concluded that the best way to heal the community's racial tensions was to increase education spending, low-income housing programs, job training, and law enforcement outreach programs. In 1966, Leo Ryan authored what became known as the Ryan Act, which led to stricter statewide school accreditation, in part to combat the injustices he uncovered while posing as a substitute teacher. Ryan wasn't content to stop at reforming the education system. Four years later, he went undercover once again, this time to Folsom State Prison, located just northeast of Sacramento. At the time, Folsom State was one of the harshest prisons in the nation, facing numerous accusations of mistreatment of inmates. Under a false identity, Ryan was arrested, strip-searched, and entered the prison as an inmate. No one working at the prison knew who he really was. He remained there for just over a week and only broke character once during the release process. After his release, Ryan worked on legislation to improve prison conditions. The Folsom prisoners that Ryan had met were so grateful that they crafted a chess set made from toilet paper, glued together with toothpaste, and sent it to his office. It was said to be one of Ryan's favorite gifts he received while in office. At 47 years old, after nearly a decade in the state assembly, Ryan set his sights on a more prominent office, and in 1972, he became the U.S. representative for California's 11th Congressional District. Ryan ran on a platform of education, prison reform, and heavy congressional oversight of the CIA. Once he was sworn in, he immediately began working on legislation that would require intelligence agencies to inform Congress about any covert operations. Ryan had always displayed a natural mistrust of authority and an instinct for seeking out the truth. In his new position, those qualities would lead him down a dangerous path. In October 1976, one of Leo Ryan's former students from Cappuccino High School, Bob Houston, was found dead in a San Francisco train yard where he worked the night shift. Houston was a devout People's Temple member, but before his death, his relationship with Jim Jones had soured. According to acquaintances, Houston was a know-it-all and would often correct Jones if he misspoke. In response, Jones nicknamed Houston the Little Professor and subjected him to savage beatings. Houston eventually began to speak out against Jones to other members. He had also been gathering information about the new Jonestown project from Temple members who were already in Guyana, and he knew Jones was lying about how much progress had been made. On October 2nd, Houston phoned his ex-wife to discuss defecting from the temple. Jones's inner circle overheard and decided the People's Temple no longer needed Bob Houston. Three days later, Houston's mutilated body was found in the train yard where he worked. The scene was brutal and bloody. The police investigation ruled the death an accident, concluding that he slipped and was run over by a freight train. There were some inconsistencies with this theory, though. Houston's co-workers remarked that he never worked in the area where his body was found. His work gloves were found several feet away from his body, folded and completely unused. Conventional wisdom at the time was that Jones had put a bounty on Houston to keep the temple's secrets under wraps. 
Shortly before his death, Houston had given his father, Sammy, the notes he'd stashed away about the Jonestown project. After the alleged accident, Sammy Houston passed those notes on to Congressman Leo Ryan. Ryan had already been intrigued by the People's Temple, considering their presence in his home of San Francisco. The mysterious death of his former student and the notes about the mysterious Guyanese compound sparked him to look into the temple more seriously. A year later, in December 1977, Timothy and Grace Stone organized an activist group called the Concerned Relatives to investigate the People's Temple compound in Jonestown. Five-year-old John Stone was still in Jim Jones's possession. And since they'd signed away their parental rights, the Stones had no way to get their child back. The concerned relatives wrote tirelessly to politicians and government agencies, but few offered any help. Besides, of course, Leo Ryan. He continued to pressure the Department of Justice to investigate Jim Jones for the better part of two years, but he was railroaded at every turn. The DOJ wasn't particularly interested in wasting their resources to investigate a group of hippies in South America. The CIA had unofficial activities in neighboring countries at the time, and they assured the congressmen they were routinely checking in with the Guyanese capital to make sure Jones wasn't causing any problems. Leo Ryan, the outspoken advocate for CIA oversight, wasn't about to take their word for it. He wanted to see what was happening in Jonestown for himself. On November 1st, 1978, Congressman Ryan announced his intention to visit Jonestown for a fact-finding mission within the next few weeks. When Jim Jones heard the news, he immediately set to work discrediting the congressman to the People's Temple Loyalists. For the most part, Ryan's political priorities were similar to Jones's, but there were two areas of his voting record that could be exploited. Ryan's approval of sending military aid to Chilean dictator Augusto Pinochet and his unwillingness to open investigations into the assassinations of John F. Kennedy and Martin Luther King Jr. The People's Temple was built, at least tenuously, on Marxist ideals. Jones used Leo Ryan's support for Pinochet's coup against the socialist president of Chile as proof that the left-leaning congressman was violently opposed to socialist leaders. Ryan's disinterest in investigating the deaths of two prominent civil rights advocates was also unpopular with the temple's congregation, which was about 68% black. Jones used the issue to paint Ryan as part of a government conspiracy to subjugate people of color. Racial fear-mongering was one of Jones's primary manipulation tactics. Anytime a chant of dissent would arise, Jones told his followers that back in the States, black people were being rounded up and sent back into slavery. Jonestown was the only safe place they could be. Since the Jungle Commune had very limited exposure to news from the US, Jones's word was taken as the truth. Once they moved to Guyana, Jones began abusing drugs more than ever and abusing his followers more often as well. Members who broke Jones's increasingly strict rules were thrown into a small hole in the ground that served as an underground solitary confinement cell. They were often kept there overnight and forced to sleep standing up as there wasn't enough room to lie down. 
to ensure he'd be able to control his disciples if an emergency arose, Jones instituted drills he called White Nights. The Jonestown villagers didn't know the emergency situations were just practice tests. Jones convinced the members that every second was real. The first White Night occurred in November 1977, shortly after the concerned relatives organized and Timothy Stone filed a lawsuit for custody of his son, John. A San Francisco court ruled in favor of the Stones, but no extradition proceedings were put in place. So Jones was completely safe so long as he never returned to the States. Jones wasn't aware of the extradition holdup, and he became convinced the feds were coming after him. He decided the best course of action, if a raid occurred, would be what he called a revolutionary suicide. During that first drill in November 1977, everyone in the village was told to line up as small glasses of red liquid were passed around. After they drank the liquid, Jones told his followers that their drinks were poisoned and they would all die within 45 minutes. An agonizing 45 minutes passed and no one was dead. Jones announced that the whole thing was just a loyalty test and they'd all passed. But he warned them that soon the time would come to enact a real revolutionary suicide. The second white night scenario occurred in the summer of 1978. Jones triggered the compound's emergency sirens, sent the Red Brigade into the jungle outside the perimeter, and ordered them to shoot into the campgrounds. The parishioners ran around Jonestown in utter chaos, thinking they were actually under attack by outside forces. They feared it might be an ambush by the U.S. government, a danger Jones had warned them of time and time again. While Jones's fears weren't totally unfounded, it cannot be stated enough that he was under the influence of an excessive number of drugs. He had graduated from cocaine and heroin and moved on to animal anesthetics and sedatives used in lethal injections. His sanity had clearly deteriorated by November 14, 1978, when Congressman Ryan arrived in Guyana. When we come back, we'll take a look at Leo Ryan's ill-fated trip to Jonestown. Now back to the story. Congressman Ryan had come to Guyana to visit uh, the People's Temple, a religious organization with headquarters in San Francisco. He was concerned over allegations that some members were being held against their will. Leo Ryan touched down in Georgetown on November 14, 1978, along with a team of congressional staffers, the U.S. Embassy Deputy Chief of Mission, Richard Dwyer, an NBC News crew, a swarm of journalists, and members of the Concerned Relatives, the activist group Timothy and Grace Stone had founded. A clerical mix-up caused the hotel reservations for the group to be canceled, so on their first night, they all had to sleep in the hotel lobby. For the next three days, Ryan met with People's Temple representatives in Georgetown. He attempted to speak with Jones via CB radio, but he was turned down every time. On November 17th, Ryan and his party boarded a small plane headed towards Port Kaituma. He proclaimed that he was going to Jonestown whether or not Jones let him. After some discussion with Jones's Red Guard at the airstrip, Ryan was eventually allowed into the compound. The welcoming party was very bizarre. 
Jonestown members lined the road and began applauding and singing songs as the visitors rode into camp on cargo buses. Ryan announced that his main agenda for visiting Jonestown was to make sure that Jones wasn't holding people against their will. Ryan, his aides, and the NBC crew conducted interviews with the members, and they couldn't have seemed more grateful for what Jim Jones had done for them. After conducting hundreds of interviews over the course of the day, Ryan felt assured that Jonestown was nothing more than a particularly strange hippie commune. As the day wound to a close, Ryan's team was invited to join them in a group dinner. Once the food was served, the temple members asked Ryan to give a speech. Ryan spoke for just a few minutes. He thanked Jones and his followers for welcoming him into their home. He spoke about the necessity of sticking together and supporting each other as a community. He concluded that the People's Temple Agricultural Project was exactly what Jones claimed it to be, a safe haven amid the natural beauty of the jungle. However, during Ryan's speech, Jonestown member Vernon Gosney handed a note to NBC News reporter Don Harris. Harris wandered away from the crowd and opened the note. It read, Please help me get out of Jonestown. This one note negated everything Ryan had said in support of the commune. As soon as he found out about the message, he knew he had to act quickly. The group was scheduled to head back to their hotel soon, since Jones didn't want the outsiders to stay overnight. But with this new knowledge, Ryan feared Jones wouldn't let him back into the compound if he left. Ryan convinced Jones to let him, his aide Jackie Spear, and U.S. Embassy Chief Richard Dwyer stay overnight to formally finish their investigation. Jones reluctantly agreed, believing it was just a formality. Everyone else, especially the news crew, still had to leave and come back in the morning. When Ryan, Spear, and Dwyer woke up on the morning of November 18th, the joyous commune they'd walked into the day before had devolved into chaos. The word had been passed around that Ryan was going to rescue some of the members and take them back to the U.S. Now, many other members were clamoring to tell Ryan they wanted to leave as well. By 3.30 p.m. on November 18, 1978, 15 People's Temple members had informed Ryan that they too wanted to leave. Ryan began to board his team and the defectors onto their buses and head back to the airstrip in Port Kaituma. Ryan radioed to the Capitol that they'd need a second plane because of the number of temple members coming with them. Jones tried to convince some of the members to stay behind, at least until the media had left, so as not to embarrass him in the temple. Most ignored him, knowing full well he was never going to let them leave on their own. Since asking nicely didn't work, Jones berated the defectors and threatened that their friends would die if they didn't stay. Some would-be defectors took him at his word and agreed to stay at the compound. Just as the final bus was about to leave Jonestown, Larry Layton, a high-ranking member in Jones's circle, asked to join them. He wanted to leave too. The other defectors protested. Layton was one of Jones' most devoted followers. They didn't trust his intentions. But Ryan also allowed Layton to come along anyway. He severely underestimated how strong a hold Jones had on some of his disciples. As the last remaining defectors boarded the bus, a temple member named Don Sly approached Congressman Ryan while he was talking with the People's Temple's lawyer. He raised a knife, lunged forward, and tried to stab Ryan. 
the attorney subdued him before he could injure the congressman. The knife slipped out of Sly's grasp and cut his hand, spraying blood onto Ryan's dress shirt. U.S. Embassy Chief Dwyer told Ryan it wasn't safe for him to stay any longer. Ryan argued that he had to stay behind in case more people wanted to leave. He couldn't abandon them here alone. But Dwyer wouldn't give in. Jim Jones clearly didn't want him there anymore either. Ryan eventually acquiesced and got on the bus. At 4.45 p.m., the buses finally reached the Port Kaituma airfield. The group had to wait another half hour for the planes to arrive. But they didn't have 30 minutes to spare. Jones had already begun his final contingency plan. Jones had a two-pronged plan to take care of Ryan and his delegation. First, his loyal follower Larry Layton was supposed to board the same plane as Congressman Ryan and kill him as they got into the air. This plan didn't quite come to fruition. Layton was placed on the first plane while Ryan and his staff waited for the second plane. By the time he realized his mistake, it was already too late. As the plane took off, Layton decided to improvise. He shot at two passengers, Vernon Gosney, who had written the first note asking to leave, and his wife, Monica Bagby. Luckily for them, the other passengers struggled for Layton's weapon and his bullets missed them entirely. Layton was subdued until the plane landed safely in Georgetown. Jones was prepared for this possibility. The second part of his plan was to send the Red Brigade to the airstrip to deal with Ryan in case Layton's plan fell through. The second plane finally arrived at the Port Kaituma airstrip at about 5.15 p.m. The remaining defectors boarded the plane while Ryan and others stowed their luggage in the cargo bay. Within minutes, a tractor truck pulled up and five men jumped out armed with machine guns. As the bullets rained down, most of Ryan's team was able to find cover behind the plane or run into the thick jungle around the airstrip. The attack only lasted a few minutes. Then, just as quickly as they arrived, the Red Brigade scurried off back to the camp. Five people were left dead on the airfield. People's Temple defector, Patricia Parks, San Francisco Examiner photographer, Greg Robinson, NBC News cameraman, Bob Brown, reporter Don Harris, and Congressman Leo Ryan. What happened at the Port Kaituma airstrip was tragic and senseless, but the horrendous atrocities occurring back at Jonestown would shock the world for years to come. Jonestown, 1978. Over 900 people lost their lives. What a tragedy it was. Looking back now, we're asking ourselves, how could such a gruesome event happen? Next week, we'll explore what occurred back at the compound while the raid at Port Kaituma was carried out. We'll also dig into Ryan's legacy and what might have happened to the 900 residents of Jonestown if he hadn't tried and failed to save them. Thanks for listening to Assassinations. We'll be back next Monday with part two of the assassination of Congressman Leo Ryan. You can find more episodes of Assassinations as well as all the other ParCast podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, or your favorite podcast directory. 
Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Assassinations was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It's produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Russell Nash, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Matten. This special episode of Assassinations and Cults is written by Richie Ward and stars Kate Leonard, Greg Polson, Vanessa Richardson, and Bill Thomas.